You're listening to the Volleyball by Design podcast. Today, we have a special guest on our podcast, uh, and I can't wait to introduce him to you, where we're going to talk about the left side position. Um, But before we get into the episode, I do want to let you know, if you're listening to this uh, and it's the month of April or May 2021, um, I got a free workshop coming up uh, on May 2nd and May 3rd, um, depending on the day, whatever day works for you. I'm hosting a free offensive workshop where we're going to tackle and dive in and talk everything uh, offensive when it comes to volleyball, offensive systems, offensive philosophy, you know, the tactical and the technical things, you know, we're going to talk about hitting lanes and offensive plays. Uh, we're going to basically, I'm going to break down um, offense in our game from the beginning all the way to the end. So whether you're a beginner coach or you're a college and pro coach, there's definitely going to be some great takeaways that I think will benefit you uh, at this workshop. All right, so May 2nd, May 3rd, head on over to vol- uh, volleyballworkshop.com. Okay, that's volleyballworkshop.com and get registered. I'll see you there. Hi, I'm Coach Brian Singh, and after 11 years coaching competitive volleyball and as a head coach of a college team, I've become obsessed with helping athletes and coaches improve their knowledge and skills of the game by teaching them how to train efficiently and effectively to ultimately reach their volleyball goals. I've created the Volleyball by Design podcast to give you simple, actionable, step-by-step strategies so you can get clarity and apply what you learn right away. This is the Volleyball by Design podcast. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to episode 46 of the Volleyball by Design podcast. How are you doing, everyone? Hope you guys are doing well. Another week for you, and I got a great, great episode for you. You know, everybody on the pod has been reaching out asking me to get a left side on. Like, you've you've done every other position in the game, but you haven't done a left side. So I knew when I've when coaches and players have asked me, I, I, I couldn't just bring on any left side. I had to bring on a left side that I know would deliver a ton of value um, to, to the podcast and to our listeners. And I wanted to, I wanted to bring on the right guy. And I, and I found the right guy uh, for you guys today. But before I introduce him, before I introduce him, um, if you're a new listener to the pod, welcome. Uh, what took you so long? You're, you're, you got about 45 episodes to get caught up on. Um, we're just about hitting the year mark in the pod, which is amazing. And if you are a regular listener, I'm so thankful for you guys tuning in. Listen, man, I started this almost a year ago, as I mentioned last week, and the, the podcast has grown. We're in over 100 different countries, um, which is incredible. I, I can't even believe we're in over 50 different countries, but we're in over 100 different countries. We have listeners from all over the world reaching out all the time. Um, the, the pod has been, I've been able to educate so many coaches and players on this and it's great. And I'm, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be in the position to continue to be able to educate and grow our game. You know, me as a coach, my job is to grow this game as much as I can, um, by helping the lives and changing the lives of players and helping you guys with the skills and knowledge and all that great stuff that we're trying to do on this pod. So let me introduce you to our guest we have today. Um, this player, and I've actually known this player for a long, long time because when I used to coach club, um, he was competing at the same time when I coached. Now I never coached against him, thankfully, but I got the luxury of being able to witness his growth, um, from the club all the way to college to pro, etc. So this player plays for power volume Milano out in Italy, he's a left side. So he plays professional left side out in Italy. He's also our left side for our Canadian national team, our men's national team. Uh, and he's been a left side for his entire career for, for, for most of the part. Well, at least his competitive career. Uh, I don't know what he did when he was younger, but regardless, I'm so excited to welcome to the pod professional national team player, Stephen Marr. Stephen, what's up, man? 
Hey, buddy. Great to be here. Excited to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I'm kind of, it's kind of weird for me because I, I watched you play for Crush, which I'm sure we're going to talk about in a sec. And our, for our Canadian listeners, every Canadian listener who has been in this game for 10 years or more knows exactly who Crush is or what, uh, the team that was, that was there. It was the dynasty. It was crazy. Um, and I know that even my colleagues, they're going to be looking forward to this episode because uh, everybody in Ontario at least knows who Stephen Marr is and knows what he can do and how he's been playing and stuff like that. So I'm excited to have you. It's kind of cool to have to have you since I, I've known you for so long, um, even though we haven't like known, known each other, but we've no, I've known you. Uh, anyways, uh, yeah, man, what's up? How are you? Doing well. Uh, I'd like to point out that for some of the crush guys, we still like to think that there's a bit of a legacy. Even if you've been out of the game for your eight years into volleyball, we like to think there was a couple of provincial stories told of what the crush guys were doing. So um, I had my final year there. So I, I don't, I, I hesitate to say I'm a total because there were some guys who played from 13U on, but. I still that's how I finish. So I like to I like to consider I'll take the I'll take the I'll take the prestige with the crush name at the end of it all. Oh it one hundred percent is true. You guys did create a legacy. Like when we when when we talk about provincials and nationals up to now, like up to now, the crush is just in every coach's mind when it comes to high level ball. Like you guys, I don't, I don't think now I might be biased because I've only been coaching this game for about 15 years or 14 years or so, but in my years of coaching this game. I don't think I've ever seen a competitive 18U team as well as I've seen Crush. And I'm talking Crush for both years, the year prior to you and your year. Like that was as a, com a, as a competitor. Yeah. yeah <laughs> as a competitor, there was, uh, it was interesting to watch because in my, in my 17 year, my 17 year, my last year, apart from Crush, um, we won nationals and I got the MVP in nationals. It was the, it was the first year they did East and West together, so 17 year. Yeah. But didn't feel quite right because Crush actually just went and won 18 year nationals instead. So, um, yeah, there's a, there's definitely in the competitors' minds that, like, it was, it was a really different. I have a lot of silver medals. I have a lot. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But. but that's okay. All right, let's talk about your journey. I want to hear everything from your journey from, you know, when you started playing volleyball all the way to your pro. Walk me through your story. So I, uh, I played provincial soccer when I was younger, and um, my brother kind of transferred into hockey, and I followed him into there, and then he started playing volleyball. And I was really fortunate. Um, my, um, my elementary school coach, he was, he was really good. Um, Technically wise, he was he had he had what you needed to know, but it was um, his mental game that was it was amazing, and it kind of opened my eyes to what it was what it was like to be with someone who was totally bought into a process. So that kind of put me on a good path, and then I started to play club that year after uh, playing with him, and we won nationals. So I was able to have some immediate success like, personally. So it kind of kind of confirmed what I. Uh, so 14 years, so I would have been in grade eight. Got it. Uh, won, we won nationals that year. So I was able to kind of start to, to feel like you're affirmed in what you're doing and stuff like that. So I went to Bill Crevice Secondary School. So I don't know if everybody knows. In If you're in the GTA, I'm sure you know. Uh, it's a sports school in Markham. So um, 
the physical program there was great for me uh, in terms of high school volleyball. I don't really think it's as comparable to club as importance, but um, I was definitely exposed to guys who were, so maybe some of the listeners know Ray uh, Zito. So I was playing against him when he was in grade 12 and I was in grade nine because the sports school would only play in the senior division. So it was able to kind of have some time of eye opening um, just to the physicality and the extent of the game which I really didn't understand at that point. So uh, moving on to there, yeah, I, I, I played in st- for, for Roar Storm for my entire career until my last year. Um, and a lot of people have asked me why I left, why I changed. And I just felt like I had gotten to a point where I couldn't, um, I couldn't develop anymore necessarily because I wanted to be in an environment where I wasn't the best player in the gym. And um, after playing on the provincial team with some of the, some of the crush guys and I saw the way we trained together and I really enjoyed it. And I felt like I made actually big strides in that environment that I wanted to continue to push myself to do so. So um, I was able to, I was fortunate enough to make the provincial team when I was in 16 U and have that experience. Um, yeah, so then I was 18U. I had a bit of an interesting recruiting process. Um, I originally signed to go to the University of Hawaii for a full scholarship, and I declined it at the 11th hour. Um, it ended up being, for me, it was, it was quite far from home. I didn't really understand the implications of that until it kind of like, dawned on me that I was like signing it away. And um, I always had to draw drawing to Mac. So for me, the choice was pretty clear. I just didn't really want to accept it. And then on the 11th hour, I did accept it. And I kind of, I was very fortunate that Dave was able to save some money for me and I was able to still go to Mac. Um, and in that year as well, in that summer, I made my first stride onto the junior national team. So um, when I was the summer of my 18 new year, I was able to make the junior national team. So one year up because the team was 19 new at the time to play for a qualifying spot for the world championships. Um, so I played at Mac for four years. My original plan was to go for five. Um, I took one summer off and the rest of the summers I either played junior national or B team. And then in my last year at, um, at nationals, there was an agent who was coming to see me um, and Dave had kind of organized that process. And he essentially told me that it was going to be up to me whether he, the agent signed me or not to go play professionally after. Uh, he couldn't do anything more than just give me the opportunity to show my skills. And luckily I played well enough. <laughs> so I actually cut my time short at Mac by a year and I was able to sign and directly go until like one of my lifetime goals, which was to maybe one day be good enough to play in Italy. And I was able to start in Italy. So that, uh, that changed things for me. Um, from there, um, I started playing on the senior national team that year. Um, yeah. And then I've played three years in Italy. I played in Padova, uh, played in Verona, and then I played in Milan. And then I took a contract in Russia and played for Dinamo Moscow. And then I'm back in Milan this year. So along the way, I played in the World Championships. We got a bronze medal at the VNL. And most recently, and definitely what I'm most proud of, um, 
we were able to qualify for the 2020 uh, Olympic Games. And that to me was yeah about a 10-year goal in the making. I, it was actually funny. I, ha- I had a conversation with, um, with a group of the Drew Nashton guys and one of the coaches brought up because he'd gone through my Twitter feed, which I'm not active on at all. But <laughs> in 2010, when they had announced where the 2020 games would be, I knew that would be my time. And I had actually tweeted Tokyo 2020 when I was wow. when I was in high school. So it's kind That's of funny crazy. how, well, kind of funny when it all kind of ends up. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm at now, and then looking looking to to head to those uh, those 2021 games now, right? Um, in July, right? Wow. Okay. There's a couple of things I want to I want to take from your story. First of all, amazing, amazing journey. That's that's crazy. Now we have a lot of club coaches that listen to this podcast, and I know that on all their minds, they wanted to know what was going on inside a crush practice that made you guys unreal. What, how did a crush practice look like? What did this, how was the setup? What was the structure? What did you guys focus on? Like, how does that work? There was a really large emphasis on. Um, Let me guess, basics. serving and passing. Okay, never mind. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it is the basics. The basics of any volleyball, well, the basics of essentially men's volleyball is the dominance of serving reception. Um, so there would be people, the, it was just the one thing I think that there's a, a maybe not as much of an emphasis on is that the difference between club and university volleyball is that in club you have two times a week, maybe three, where you are putting in time in the gym, and whereas university you have five times a week, then you have the games on the weekend. But it's the it's the incredible amount of reps that you can obtain in that those extra days especially when those sessions are are longer and there are more resources available like a serving machine or whatever or what have you and i think one of the things that was so great about crush is there was a technical emphasis but there was also an emphasis on the repetitions and then there was the encouragement of and almost an expectation that the guys would play also beach volleyball because it was based in uh, scarborough close to the beaches as well so in beach volleyball one of the greatest assets is you touch the ball every other every other touch right so there i think one of the greatest things about crush was the serving the reception and the defense of the team um the physicality i think came a bit later but is their their baseline was so high because they all the guys had just touched the ball so many times right so would you say that um you know, in a, in a typical practice, right, you would have, you know, maybe the first hour would be all fundamental technical based. And then after that is more wash drills and stuff like that. Or how did that, how did that look like? Yeah, there was definitely an emphasis on that. There was, um, there was an emphasis on you being able to perform all skills. So we would do, let's say if we did three V three back row, everybody would set, not just the setters. And it would be important that you could set because like, that that's kind of the nature of like if you take the, the beach volleyball approach in essence is that you can perform every skill and th- i think that's where they were able to succeed is that everybody had the capacity and even if they didn't have the best capacity they had the awareness of of thinking outside the box and speaking of thinking outside the box there was an emphasis on something that i find crucially important now which i didn't find in any other setting which was there was some mental there was some mental training there was a deliberate intent from the staff to push you mentally 
to create situations that were difficult for you, that you would have to work through as a team, as a unit. Drills that were designed to be almost impossible drills, but they would continue to run until you finish them. And um, I think a lot of people drew on the team success at nationals and at provincials, but to be totally honest, that team was actually on a descent at that point um, because the team's goal actually was to win um, the Eastern qualifier for nationals in the States and the Western qualifier, so to win in California. And that was, that was I would say, the optimal point of the team. Right. And then after that, we were there was a bit of a distraction and a bit of a pull apart as people were thinking about university and different things. We were able to keep it together and win the last two tournaments. But um, definitely at, at those moments where the stress was the highest, um, there were some sessions on meditation, on mental awareness and things like that, which I, employ, I, I use right now every That's day. Amazing. But um, there was the, the awareness that that was necessary. And I think that also comes from the beach volleyball sphere of there's two guys on a court, you have to be extremely aware of what you do, what you say, and and what your mind, what you let your mind do, um, because it can be make or break in those situations, especially when there's only two guys. Great advice. Yeah. And you know, I think that's becoming more prominent in our game now too, with the whole the mental skills training. Like there is there is staff positions that like we have on our staff, we have a mental skills coach, and that is her job. Um, so we take it seriously and I think you absolutely need to take it seriously. Cause yeah, yeah. Steven, you hit it on the money. Okay. Um, I kind of in, in your story as well. Uh, so you, 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 you didn't go to Hawaii, um, last, last minute you made the decision to stay uh, closer to home, which I completely understand. Why Mac? Um, I actually, it wasn't just a one-time trip for me to Mac. It was probably, but if I'm being honest, it's probably seven different trips. So I really gave them the ring around. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Um, I was also someone who my parents, um, they wanted me to see everything and to experience everything. So I, I took trips out West to, to Alberta and, and to BC. Um, and then I was able to, to visit a lot of different, um, areas and, and honestly be able to compare the analysis of the coaches and what they kind of explained that their product was and how they were able to envision me succeeding in that sphere and for me i think the biggest thing which was my fear but ended up turning into my um honestly my my like resounding factor of choosing yes was i wasn't sure if the oua would be a good enough good enough arena for me to develop because oh, okay. i i didn't i didn't look at a like i looked through then all the national team rosters and a very large percentage of the players were coming out from out West. And I just realized, okay, the competition is higher. That's what's generating the results. And if you want to be on the national team, you want to be a professional athlete, you want to go to the Olympics, you go out West. That's what you have to do. And so I, I kind of knew it was Mac, but I didn't really know if it was possible. And I had a conversation actually with John May, the coach of Crush. And he was explaining to me that at the end of the day, it's what you make of your training. And I think there's a definite point of value to that. Like you can't expect an environment or a coach to be the one that makes you great. It definitely has to come kind of from within yourself. And um, once that kind of that message really sunk in, I was able to go back and look at Mac with a fresh eyes. And they were a great program. They were getting national medals at the time. And I was really able to to go back to Dave one more time and listen to kind of 
okay, what does he see for me? And at the end of the day, like I had a great connection with him. So it was, it was kind of once I got out of my own way, I was able to make yeah. the choice that I knew was right all along. Right. That's great. Yeah. No, that's a great message for young athletes looking into getting programs. I mean, a hundred percent, you got to see your program and it's really who you connect with because the, the coach has such a big part of it, right? The program was obviously uh, doing well. You said they were meddling. Um, obviously, you know, Dave's a great coach and you got to connect with him on a different level, which is amazing. You, I mean, you, you got to be where you want to be happy. I tell my players all the time that we're, we're recruiting. If you're not happy, it's going to be a, a lose-lose for both of us. You have to be happy. You got to be, you got to feel comfortable. Yeah. You got to fit our culture and stuff like that. So that's great. Okay, let's get to some some tactics, some specific strategies here. Let's talk. Everyone else wants to know how to how to play the position. Um, so I'm going to leave this as an open ended question for you, and then um, as you describe and as you think, I might ask you some questions. But but really, how do you be an effective left side? What what are the ingredients to be an effective, you know, left side? How do you train for the position? Go. Okay, so as a preface to this question. Um, I think everybody has to understand what their fundamental strengths and weaknesses are. And I'm talking physically. Um, so there are some things that you can get past, uh, physically, but there's some things you can't, like if you are six, nine in an absolute truck and you can, and your game is going to be that you're spiking over people and you're spiking off people's fingers every single time then that's a different story than someone who is spiking off of people's elbows and is never spiking over, but is effective in other ways. So I think taking myself, for example, or let's, I don't, I won't take myself. I'll take, I'll take two of the best left sides in the world and kind of break it down. So if you have, it's kind of, yeah, here's a great one. So if you have Leal, who's currently playing for Chivinova, in Italy, and you have Ingepeth, the French left side, playing for Kazan. So when you're training as Leal, you're playing, you're taking essentially one quarter of the court reception because you're probably paired with someone else who is more of a receiver than a spiker, and you're paired with also the libero. So your reception is to be good but you're not looking to be outrageous because at the end of the day when people are serving 120k you're not putting the ball perfect you're putting it just on three meters and you're not giving the ball away you're not doing any overpasses but you're 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 kind of aware and attentive that you're probably going to be spiking against two blockers almost all the time and so as you're training for that you're in those situations if if there's a very phenomenal server on one end. You're looking, okay, is the setter first line? Okay, if it's a high ball situation, it, where is the weakest blocker? Who do I want to exploit? Is it a middle serving? Where where do they play defense? And these are sorts of things that you can kind of identify for yourself and take notes on when you're watching video of the other team. Maybe the middle always plays defense in six, and then you can have a push tip just over the block into the middle, away from position one, away from position five. And you're going to exploit the weakest defender. Um, so as you're training for that type of player, you're definitely focused more on attack and serve and block. Those are your ways of taking points. And you're trying to minimize the ability for other people to exploit you. So you're paying close attention to people's variation on serves 
what will they be doing? What would you do against you? And I think it's, it's easier to assume that in the majority of the time in reception, it's an easier skill for you because you assume most people will serve at you because you're paired with a great receiver and a Libro. So you're under the assumption that the ball will come probably within one step either way of you. So it becomes a lot easier. It's just kind of understanding, do they have a short serve? Do they have a, a spin toss or a float serve? Do they have just a spin serve? And it's understanding where you kind of need to be. Now, if you're a player like Ingepath, your value is derived more from, I would say, your, your ability to receive very difficult balls. And that is going to be a technical issue. That is also going to be a video issue because if you realize that one guy serves to position one, but he never serves the sideline, he always serves six, one, and one, you can push to take more court and totally leave areas of court completely, completely open and be comfortable doing so. And once you kind of have the awareness to move around the game like that, then you can start to make the court very small for yourself, for the libero, and for the, 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 the spiker receiver. And once you can make their jobs easier, you're starting to input more value. Your value will also be derived from your ability to play incredible defense. When you play against Ingepeth and Grebenikov, you play against essentially two liberos. It's frustrating. <laughs> um, in block, see, that's the other thing I would find interesting too. In block, you're probably trying to not take as many blockouts. So the whereas Leal might push his hands and be trying to take kill blocks, Ingepeth is probably going straighter, trying to give the opportunity to play defense and not take a block out off the side of the hand or something like that. Because, for example, in Kazan this year, when you have Volvic and Mikhailov and Ingepeth on a triple block, you're going to go at Ingepeth because he's the smallest and theoretically the weakest blocker of the three. So it's kind of, I think for both players, you would be trying to minimize your, your already known weaknesses and maximize your ability to, to implement your strengths. And I think when you're doing that, um, you have an understanding. Now, if you're kind of at home and you're like, oh, I'm kind of in the middle, well, then that's great because that's your ability to work on both. And if, as long as you can keep improving at both, then you're in a great spot. Okay, there is a lot to digest there. Um, so I'm going to talk about a couple of things. First of all, amazing analysis. Uh, one of the key takeaways I took away from that was to be a great left side passing. Let's just talk, you talked about a lot of reception there. You have to understand what's on the other side of the court. You have to know who your opponent is, right? Know what kind of serves they like to do and where they like to serve the ball, the speed of that serve. So understanding your opponent is a big ingredient to being a successful passer. Um, sure. I, also, I also noticed that you said you have to identify your strengths and weaknesses and play to those. So, you know, yeah. if, you, if you're a, a stronger receiver, you're, if, you're, if you're a weaker receiver, you're going to take less court and so forth and focus on your attacking. Okay, great. Really great uh, analysis there. So let's, let's break it down even further um, for the, the players and their coaches that are listening. We, we, we talked about, so you talked more so about serving and passing, right? Those are the two elements you put a lot of emphasis yeah. on. How, as a left side, or in general, we'll talk about the skill, how can you train to become a great passer? I'll just leave it at that one. What are some of the key things that you need to be doing to be a great passer, to be a left side? 
I'm realizing this more as I go. <laughs> so yeah, no worries. It's not going to be perfect. Um, I think understanding your ability to be mobile. I think that's one of the things that I didn't give enough credit to when I was younger. Um, is your strength and range in positions that are outside of your body. So if you're doing a lateral lunge and you're just as balanced as when you're doing a squat, that's great. Because as the ball moves and rotates, your lower body will not rotate as you lunge out and it'll just be your upper body able to make the movement. Um, if you are unstable, your lower body is going to be moving, which is going to move your core, which is going to move your upper body. And it's going to be a lot more difficult to, to keep, um, to keep that ball on point. Um, I think having the ability to understand, like I, like I said, I think your eye for the ball, this takes time, but one of the things I like to do when I'm not receiving in my, let's say we're just doing a re some reception in practice. I like to stand behind the receiver to watch the ball. Because just to imagine what I would do in that scenario to get more reps for my eyes. One thing that's interesting that people don't realize is when people toss up uh, a spin serve, like they launch the ball as a spin motion and they, do a, and they do a float serve with that, why it's partially so difficult is one, due to the position of the receivers as they're more back, they're expecting a serve, they're more dug in, their weight isn't as, as mobile as they would be if it was a float serve. But also, their eyes haven't really seen that sort of a serve before. They, they're used to having someone toss it with two hands, and they know exactly what's coming at them. And it creates a bit of an unpreparedness. And I think for that reason, it's interesting. The more, the more reps you can take and the more cleanly you can feel the ball, and you have, like, how do I say this? You have a purpose when you're passing the ball, like you're aiming to push a ball to a certain area and it's an intentional, that's repeatable. But if you're taking a ball off the bicep and it gets lucky, that's a lucky ball. That's not a repeatable ball. You know, so kind of having that understanding. Um, and the last thing I would say that I had a problem with when I was younger, especially trying out for different teams. So I was trying out for the provincial team and trying out for the national team. I tried to hide my weaknesses past the tryout. So if I knew I wasn't a great receiver in one, position one, I would pull the Libro over a bit more and I would have him cover a bit more in the trial. But then I would do it in practice. And that's kind of the issue is that I would almost negate my own ability to get uh, exposed and therefore would have gotten more help uh, because I didn't want to look weak and I didn't want to be maybe taken off the starting six or whatever it is or to ruin my chances of the starting six. So I think understanding where you need, because receiving in one is different than receiving in five. And I think once you understand which area you're better at, you can devote more time as practices become more of what you, what you need to work on as opposed to what the team is working on. Right. Okay. So mobility, um, being able to you know, pass outside your body and being stable, whether you're in a lunge position or straight up, like if you're stable, you're, you're good to go. Um, Focusing on your weaknesses, like the last point you made there, if you're if you're weaker in position one versus passing position five, really dial in on that weakness, understand it, and train it. Um, did I miss anything? Those are the two ones? Those are two. I guess the last thing would be, but I don't really like to use this one. It's a, the, this, this is the, a big difference between hand passing and oh, right. forward passing. Right. And 
I don't honestly know how long hand passing will go because it wasn't possible before. Now it is. Maybe it won't be in the future. So um, at the end of the day, those skills are still transferable. It's how mobile you are, how fast you can move your feet to the ball. And those are the exact same skills, but it's just a different medium. Instead of using your forearms, using your hands. So, Got it. So are you saying, so work both skills? Yeah, I would work both skills. I, I am better with my hands and with my forearms on float reception. So I spend more time up, but that doesn't mean I don't train the other area because at the end of the day, you might need it. There right. might be a guy who can do both and you have to be able to do, to do both. Right. Okay. Great. Great. Okay. Um, so yeah, so mobile, uh, training hands platform, understanding weaknesses, um, anything else in terms of passing in terms of maybe reading or platform work angles, anything about that? Honestly, Honestly, the last one I'm going to give is is kind because of, I feel like I think inherently people know a lot of those things. Oh, trust and, me, yeah, treat treat them like they don't know anything about passing. <laughs> sometimes the little things you need to remember. It's crazy. Yeah, this is a very simple one, but it's actually the trajectory you put on the ball. Um, I think fine. I'm definitely a better blocker than I am as a receiver. But one of the things that's easiest for me is when people pass the ball very fast. They don't create a parabola, and I think. That's one of the things that the Russians and the Italians both love is when there is a nice grand parabola that allows all options, people moving with relative ease. There's no forced play. It's not Brazilian style. And right. they are so much more efficient in a situation like that. And I think that's one of the things that people in the men's game accept a lot more. You can pass the ball on the three-meter line with a great parabola They'll take that any day over you passing to the net, but kind of shooting it like you lose the first tempo and you're, you're kind of working with, you're handicapping yourself anyways. Right. So whether it's hand passing or forearm passing, I would really emphasize that because that's been emphasized to me. So Got it. I like that. No, that's great advice. Okay, great, great stuff when it comes to passing. Um, I love it. Let's go to, uh, let, let's talk about serving a, a little bit because you know serving and passing, uh, we can't do passing without serving. Um, what are your what are your thoughts on serving? How, how do you become a better server? What should you be focusing on? Uh, what do you got for me? So it's quite interesting. So, so for my almost entire career, I've been serving from position one, um, and I have not had success finding like the straight angle serve to five. And um, it's been really interesting. So I've actually this year I've moved to the five sideline, and similar to a left side would be spiking. And now I can actually hit everywhere on the court. And my effectiveness as a server is gone through the roof. The one thing that I still need to work on, I think importantly is, is a short serve. However, to be able to hit all angles of the court is the first thing because when I was serving in five, people would leave about a meter and a half on the sideline in five. Sorry, when I was serving in, in one, one. Yeah, people yeah. would leave about a meter and a half on the sideline in five because I would never hit it. And if I did, it was more of a mishit. It wasn't a clean, clean ball. And I think there's a lot. It's really hard to have success when you can have three receivers and they're only receiving, what, seven and a half meters. Right. Because you can't actually hit the other meter and a half. Like, that's that's really difficult. Um 
And that's kind of the, the interesting thing with having four receivers when you bring the opposite in is that it becomes a lot when you when you get the ball on a guy on his body, it's quite hard to have like an ace type success if that's what you're searching for. Um, it's a lot more effective to have it if you can get into a seam and create a confusion of whose ball it is. But also there's a split second where people just if they don't move, it's already gone. Um, so that's the speed we're talking about now. So for me to change where I've been serving has been an incredible thing because it allowed me to have the range. Now, when I play against people, the worst servers that I come against are unique servers. So like I said, you don't see that type of serve very often. So one of my teammates here in Milan, he's the worst server that you want to go against you. Because he has, from a float two-handed toss, same toss, he has float, a short float, and his, like, his regular flow is quite strong. And he has spin. And he has that to all angles of the court. So you have to be prepared in your mind. I got to be ready for a short float, regular float, and a spin. And they all look the exact same, and they all come out what they all just right you know, it's just right. you'll see when you get it now there's some guys who have a high toss for a spin and a low toss for a, a spin float that makes it a little bit easier but this guy doesn't have it. so that's the worst guy you if you're a receiver that you're going against now the same comes from the other side of the court our setter he has a spin roll to five and to one he has hard to all angles of the court, and he has float from the same toss. Looks the exact same. Now, that is brutal. Mm -hmm. Especially if you're a receiver who likes to set float serves because he can do that. He can then hammer a ball at you. Then he can roll it short. And he can do any number of variation. And your mind is calculating what he can do. Maybe what is this he's going to do? Maybe now you're adjusting your position outside of your comfort zone because of what you are trying to anticipate that he'll do. So I think as a server, the more variation you have, the better. The more consistent you are, obviously the more chances you have to score points. I think the last thing that's not really said or mentioned in men's volleyball is the, the less amount of times that you hit the tape is better. Because almost always when you hit the tape, it's going to be a double plus pass. It's going to be a perfect pass. Yeah. And I think in stats and, and the accumulation of data, there's not necessarily a great emphasis on how many times you're just barely nicking the tape, but you're just making it so much easier for them. And if you just spent a bit more time working on a little bit deeper into the court, you'd have a lot more success. And I don't think anyone really ever told me that, but I kind of watched it enough happen to me that I, I've really worked on changing that um, change that area so if you could have the most variation you could have and if you on your hard your bomb balls that you're hitting um the last meter of the court i think you'll have more success like that interesting so i mean we call it the hybrid i don't know what name there is for the yeah, kind of series, right? it's a yeah it is a hybrid, the hybrid right so you, yeah. you you're seeing that to be like uh so it's, I, i've noticed it's getting more and more popular in the, in the international game but those hybrids are the most difficult serves to receive is what you're saying. It's the, so it's the potential of having both. Okay. So I think 
So, for example, if you're taking Leon, Leon's harder than any hybrid. But not everybody's Leon. So I'm saying if you have a good shoulder, you're not like – because there are certain guys that if they can hit over 115, 120 into the court, I'm taking that guy. But if you can't do that – like I'm not one of those guys. I can't do that. But I haven't taken out the hybrid because I like what I'm doing right now. Um, if you can, if you can have the, the maximum amount of variation, you create the most problems in the receiver's mind to go on runs because yeah. as the run continues, they don't know you've shown them that you can do a float. You've shown them that you can do a spin and you've shown them you can do a roll. So for example, in our match last night, my buddy, Jan, the guy who has the, the float toss, the guy started Jan put the first serve in in the first set. The guy set it. So Jan's like, okay, so he's going to set my serve down. Next time he comes around, he hammers it on, aces him. And now the guy is now had one perfect pass, one got an ace right. through his fingers, and now he steps back because now he's not comfortable doing what is comfortable to him. And Jan's taking that away from him. And then... What do you think he would? Do? What do you think he would do for the next serve? If if he if he stepped back, I'd float it. Yeah, that's what I would thought too. What does Jan do? He hammers it again. Oh, <laughs> nice. But but that's what I'm talking about. He's like, and that's the anticipation. As I watched the guy step a, a little bit, he took a little step forward, and Jan hammered it again because you don't know, you don't control it. Right. But the thing that's interesting is that you're anticipating what you might do, and that's the mental trick of the variation is that you're trying to imagine what this guy's going to do when you should just be thinking about passing the ball. And I think it creates a large confusion, especially because it's your mind has, your eye hasn't seen it very often. And yeah, I think right now, especially with this new ball, um, this new ball isn't as effective as the old Mikasa for floating. So there are, a substantial amount of middles I've seen specifically move to either spin serves or to doing both because the ball does drop a bit more. So you can practice more with the hybrid and it's more effective like that. Right. So do, would you recommend um, club players, university players starting to implement hybrids um, in their, in their serve, or would you ra- rather than focus on their spin float and then when they master it, then go to that? Like how would you? Would, so if you take a look at, if I was to, okay, so I'm 26 now I'm, 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 I'm pretty happy with where I'm at right now serving, mm-hmm. but if I was 17 and I was thinking, okay, I'm trying to be a more effective server, what do I want to do? The first thing I would do is I would have the exact same toss every single time. Mm-hmm. And that's what our setter does. But more importantly, there's a player, his name is Osmani Wantorena. He's one of the best left sides in the world. And they were measuring his 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 toss. I think it was within a foot. I think out of I think they did a test of like a hundred times. He was never different of more than a foot. There was never more than a foot of variance. Right. And it's just so consistent because your body's done it so many times that it's not a thought anymore. It's just a mechanical process. Right. And I think if I was doing something like that, I would try and create a serve similar to that. And then if you wanted to add into a hybrid afterwards after you were so consistent with your spin or your float whatever it was that you wanted to start to change it but 
from my experience, when I've seen a couple of my friends start to implement, especially from the float to spin, mm-hmm. it will take them about a year, a year and a half to feel comfortable. And it will wow. take a lot of mistakes in crucial moments where they try and they don't get it. Right. So there's got to be, if you're entering into that and you're a younger player or you're a university player, you have to accept that there's going to be mistakes. And I, th- I think going into it with a, with a growth mindset, with a positive mindset of every mistake I make, as long as I understand why there was a mistake, or even if you don't understand, as long as there's an acceptance that there will be mistakes and you're not discouraged and you don't right. start trying to change something immediately because you didn't have success right away, then I think it's it's a good thing. But in my experience, when I was younger, I didn't necessarily have that kind of patience. So I think if you could be great at one thing, start with that. And then afterwards, you can add additional variables to your your survey. No, man, that's great advice. Yeah, no, for sure. Oh, that it makes you think of serving in a whole different way. Like it's not, you know, it's one thing to work the skill, but it's another thing to be able to have your opposing receiver now questioning what you're going to do and be, be, being able to play that chess that chess mass or the ch- uh, the chess chess match based on you know your ability to do multiple different types of serves that's pretty cool um i like yeah. that okay last thing we're going to talk about in terms of skill why does everyone want to be a left side so they can hit the ball attacking so why, how, how do we be an, an effective attacker? How do we train to be an effective attacker? What are you looking for when it comes to an effective attacker? What do you got for me? Um, I think the first thing that I've really struggled with when I was younger was timing. Um, so it was my timing when the ball was not perfect. So a lot of the time what we do is we start with warm up, and then the setter goes to perfect position in two and a half. And we pass the ball perfectly and he sets us perfectly and we feel good because it's all worked out perfectly. And then the second the ball comes from two outside of the court, you're starting to move your feet when the ball is where it should be. Um, and you're about a second and a half early. So I think it's really interesting when you start to move the, the ball around the court. And this was something I also ha- was afraid to do because I didn't want to make mistakes in Spike, because Spike has always been one of my strongest attributes. So I didn't want to show weakness. So I wouldn't try and spike balls that were difficult to spike. And then I came across uh, one of my most influential coaches, uh, Andrea Gianni, and he is one of the the best players of all time. And so he would initiate some wash drills and things like that by tossing a ball like a random toss and calling and telling the player before and, and it was your obligation to spike that ball. You had to spike that ball. There was no setting it over like the drill would just restart. And when he did that, he introduced a type of creativity into my mind of like, you had to understand what range was. You had to understand how hard you had to hit a ball, how you had to take a ball. Could you take it in front of you or could you, did you have to take it higher? And I think that was a really interesting activity for my mind. And I would really suggest that for younger players because once my mind realized, oh, like I can actually spike a ball when it's four meters off the net. And like, I feel comfortable doing it. It made my ability to spike balls that were perfect feel that much better. Um, So moving past that, I would say 
I'm going to take this as actually a blocker's perspective. The worst guys to block against are the guys who can hit everywhere. So at the level of university, and if that's what your goal is, or is to play national team or to play pro, um, as you move upwards, the video analysis only gets better. And so if you do not spike a certain area of the court, they will know that you do not spike there and they will eliminate that variable from their mind. And so, for example, if I know a guy when the ball is perfect, only spikes diagonal, then you better believe that as a blocker, I will be fully camped out, jumping as high as I can, reaching as far as over the net as I can to block your diagonal. But now if you take a guy that either spikes short diagonal or spikes the line, now you've introduced a variable into my mind. Now I have to start reading your body cue. Now I have to start reading what did I block you before? Did you make a mistake before? What did you do before? And now can I try and change what I would do normally to try and get you? And see, once you, similar to serving, as you start to introduce variables, you start to create a conflict in the mind because, okay, this guy scored on the line. Now I'm going to take the line. Now he scored diagonal. Oh, shit. What do I do now? Do I, did, is he going to go back to the line now because I took that? And you start to play games with the blocker. Now, this is predicated on your ability to spike everywhere. So that's probably going to be the most important thing once you have your timing down is to have the ability to spike short diagonal, long diagonal to the line. Can you, when the ball is close, can you push the ball off the block out of bounds? Can you, when you see a hole in the middle, can you have your arm drawn back and then really fast just push it right through the hole in the block? Do you have all of these changes of tempo and do you have the strength to back it up? Because if you only tip, you're not going to be effective because no one's ever waiting for you to, to destroy a ball. But if you only destroy balls, some this is kind of what happened to me in my second year of pro, there would be a guy on every high ball that I was going to spike, who would stand on 10 meters, so a meter, maybe a meter and a half outside of the court, waiting for the ball to just go off the block and he would just run, chase that thing down and dig it back up. I didn't think to just maybe throw, tip a ball right into the middle of the court because I, I didn't do it. That wasn't my natural thought progression. It was like, I have a ball, I'm a big spiker, here's my opportunity to spike. And I think once you start to understand the versatility and the different ideas around spiking, um, it'll be easier. Um, that being said, one of the drills for that, uh, I think, which is, was most interesting. So one of the things that I've struggled with in my career was spiking with, with pace and deep down the line, mm -hmm. um, which is one of the most effective. If you're going to be any kind of spiker, you want to be a line spiker. Um, just for the sake of offensive systems, the guy has to be closer so he can't help as much to the middle or to the pipe because he's got to take the line. Right. So um, if you are a line spiker, one of the things that I found was really helpful for me was my coach forced me as a 26-year-old national team, played four years a pro athlete. He put a pylon and said I had to hit this pylon for me to stop. And I had to continue to spike until I was able to, to just find the solution, what it felt like for my body to have to replicate an action to hit the same spot on the court long, deep, and hard. Um, Did you have a block when you were doing that? No, no. Okay. This was like free spike because 
when people have a blocker, they're worried about the success of themselves. They're worried about the success of the blocker. The blocker knows they're trying to spike line. We're competitive. We're going to, we're going to try and screw over our buddy. And it was just, and it was, I think that was what, what made it effective for me was that was easy and it wasn't, there was no failure. It was like, okay, you spiked up, but you're trying something new. It's okay. Whereas if a guy slam blocks me in my face, now there's a bit of anger. Now there's a bit of resentment. And I'm not as much worried about the, the goal as much as it's the process. So and was think, it a regular like tempo set, like a regular simple yeah, simple ball? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I would receive it and we would just do that. And we would do that everybody. And everybody would have what they were working on. So some guys weren't great at spiking short diagonal. For me, I was. So they were able to just replicate that spike and continue to do that. And I think just giving people the opportunity to be comfortable and, and trying to hit something um, and being able to make a mistake, I think that's, I think that's one, of the, one of the keys for me was just making a, a place where you could make some mistakes and there was no, I don't want to say no judgment, but like you didn't feel like you were being held to a standard by your teammates of like we're losing the drill because you're trying to do this new thing and it's not working and I want to win the drill. You know? Right. Yeah, I know. Great advice. So um, make sure as, as an attacker, you have a bunch of different shots. So you're, you're not, it's not easily defendable. You can do a lot of different things, which is, yeah, 100%. And making sure that you, you have the ability to attack a ball, regardless of whether it's a perfect set or it's not a perfect set, it's inside the court and you know, whatever the case is. So yeah, I, I 100% agree with you. All right. So just to finish off a little bit here. So we talk, so we're not going to talk about the skills. We've got a lot of great, first of all, Stevie, thank you so much for all the skill stuff. Amazing. When it comes to attacking, serving, passing, um, let's, let's kind of talk. Coaches always ask me, they always want to know what it looks like inside a pro practice, inside a pro gym on game day. So as a pro athlete, you know, what is a typical practice look like for you in terms of a schedule, in terms of the actual practice itself? Um, and then in terms of game day as well. Um, yeah, so generally in professional volleyball, we you would have a double day, a single day, or a game day. And on a double day, you're going to be doing um, – I generally spend about two hours in the weight room and then probably about 30 to 45 minutes in reception um, doing uh, – whether it's float, whether it's spin, combination of both, that's fine. Um, so that will be my morning. And then similar night practice – on both days. So on the day where you have a single day, you don't have a practice in the morning. It's always a night thing. Um, and so in the night practices are generally when the volume of jumping is done. And it depends on your coach, really. Like we have, our coach here loves to start the day with games. So we'll have, we'll pick each other's teams. We'll play, we'll play tennis. We'll play, uh, we'll play games in twos. We'll play a, a variety of different games. And it's kind of just set the tone to be light and fun. And, and in my experience, has been a great, a great thing to look forward to for guys, especially when we're grinding through a long season. Yeah. Um, so moving past that, we generally start with uh, free spike. So whether that's guys doing perfect passes, like I'll generally start with a couple of high balls. Um, it depends. Or in warming up to jump, we would start with serve and receive. And as you feel warmer and warmer, you can start to take some spikes off the reception that's done just from the serve and receive. Um, so you guys are separated now, like 
you know, left side, they're on one side. Is that what it is? And then no, this is the whole so team. It's the whole team. So, for example, me and the Libra would be receiving and on one side and our other left side and the second Libra will, will be receiving on the other side. Got it. And everybody who's not receiving will be serving. Got it. Except the setters will start to come in. They'll start as they're warming up. They'll start to set some balls. And then maybe the middles will come in and I'll pass the ball and the setter will set and the middle will spike. Got it. And people start to warm up like that. Um, one of the interesting ones that we've done this year, uh, which I think is, is something pretty cool to take back. Um, so we've done a, a drill on recycling. So uh, you've been forced to, you have to play into the block five consecutive times and then you're out. But if you don't, you continue going until you get out. Um, so oh, say that again. So you're forced. So, so like, like, so ball pass set, and then you're forced to hit it into, is it a, is it a bunch of coaches on a box or is it blockers transitioning? No, no it's six on six. Oh, um, six on six. Okay. Got it. So it'll be six on six. So the other team knows you're trying to recycle. So they're trying to, to block as, as much as they can realistically. Um, and you have to get two balls that end up outside of three meters. So you can't just tap it and just, and get a ball like that. You have oh, to actually no hit way. some and you have to get two outside of three meters. Um, and so, yeah, so it's pretty interesting. Uh, we'll do that or we'll do 90 seconds where you have to hit balls at maybe 50% and you have to play consecutively for a minute and a half without the, the rally dying mm -hmm. and you're trying to keep it alive, but naturally some guys will just not be really ready in defense or something like that and you'll lose it. So we'll do something like that, something to get the jumps going and getting the guys moving. And um, then we'll, our team generally this year will do, we'll do like, we'll do theoretically like a wash drill, yep. but it will be broken down into the, like every, the, let's say the first ball is, so it's side out and you can set anyone. And then he'll, so then the other side the side, the side that received, let's say they side out on the first ball, right? Um, then a ball will be given to the opposite side. And whoever had scored, that side can't use that side of the court. So, for example, let's say guy serves, I receive, I get set in position four, I spike and score. Okay. Now a free ball is given to the other team and they can't set the opposite because that's where I had scored from. Right. So now I get to go and help out on the middle and the middle is free to help out on the pipe and the guy in four because we've cut the court down. Okay, so that's the second ball per se. And then the third ball would be front or back, no first tempo and pipe. And then the fourth ball, let's say, is a high ball. And then let's say the fifth ball would be a ball that's similarly tossed and anybody can do anything with it. So sometimes it's not tossed very high. So you have to, it's the art of giving a hard free ball. Are you going to set it short to position two? Are you going to look at setting position two and you're going to push it to position five? Are you going to spike it? Is it allowed to be spiked? Like right. things like this. So it creates like some variation that. and keeps you kind of moving. And then we'll do something like that. Maybe towards the end, it will be refined down to, um, to pretty much just, uh, side outs for both sides it depends um on the day of the game though it will pretty much exclusively be 
warm up. Almost all teams across the world play tennis to start in the morning for game yep. days. Yep. Um, so that's kind of fun. There'll be something to maybe get used to the gym, like a little bit of spiking just from people standing mm-hmm. and your defense and someone else will set it just to get used to the gym. And then you'll have some serve and pass and that's really it. So, okay. yeah. Wow. That's, I, I love the insight for the practice, man. That's great. Yeah. That's really cool. Thanks for sharing that. And I like that. And yeah, it seems like it's, it's very, um, very similar across most parts of the world where you have your, your, your two a days or your one a day or whatever, where you have your morning session, your afternoon session, that seems to be pretty, pretty, uh, consistent across the board. Uh, that's solid. Okay. Last question for you. I, cool. I know I've kept joining for a little longer. It's been, it's been so good, man. It's been amazing. The insight is great. Uh, if you could go back, if you could go back in time to the club you uh, or the university you. Actually, let's, let's go to club you. What would you tell yourself? That's hard. Um, it's hard because you, you came from a solid program already. <laughs> yeah. You guys are on top of the world. So, yeah. I would... I would give... So... Naturally, I'm, I'm inclined to say, like, don't be afraid to make mistakes. And, like, all because like, I gave a lot of examples here of, like, things I was afraid to do when I was younger. But then again, I also did make all the teams that I wanted to make. And maybe if I had kind of shown a bit more of, uh, of, a, of a weakness, maybe I wouldn't have. So I'm not going to use that. But there's one thing that I, I've definitely noticed uh, as I've grown older. And when you take care of your body – Volleyball is a lot more fun and you'll play a lot better than when you're in pain. And I know, especially with younger guys and guys who transition into university, there's a lot of things on your plate. There's school, there's trying to play, is making sure that you don't flunk out of school. It's making sure that maybe the girl down the hall or the guy down the hall, you like them or whatever it is. And you got a lot of things on your mind. And one of the things that usually gets fallen on the wayside is your physical preparation. and when you're young, you can do the six games in a day, seven games in a day. I don't believe that I did that, but apparently I did. Seven games in a day and you're fine. But as you get older and uh, the matches are more intense and they're longer and you jump higher and there's more, there's more strain on your body, um, you really do need to start taking care of yourself in a more effective way and kind of exploring what, what really works for you. And so for me, now I have my like kind of routine dialed down. Like I do my meditation every day. There's certain things that I eat before I play. Um, For my gym sessions, whether I play in Russia, whether I play in the national team, whether I do something else, I pretty much do the same workout all the time because it makes me feel good. And that's really the crucial thing at the end of the day. It's kind of understanding what may work for me, may not work for you. But at the end of the day, like when you figure out what works for you and it kind of clicks, you're going to have a lot more fun and you're going to be a lot better at volleyball because you're not going to be hesitant to go over your knee to pass the ball because your knee hurts. You're not going to be, oh, I, I kind of want to serve a couple extra balls here and work on that, but my knee hurts and I don't really want to jump more. And it kind of takes away from from your possibilities. So I, I would really kind of try and take that, um, maybe that little handicap out of there if you can. And I'm, there's a lot of great physical preparation coaches in, in volleyball. There's some that are up and coming that are doing really well and doing great work. So, um, 
yeah, I think it's it's a crucial step, especially moving towards the the university level or the national team level. Its physicality is so different. So. Yeah, man, I, I can't agree more. Like, it's so important to take care of your body. You should be definitely strength training, uh, regardless of how old you are. I mean, obviously, if you're 14 years old, you're not going to be your strength training is going to look different than an 18 year old. But you should you should have some form of resistance training uh, in your regimen. Steven, man, I kept you on here for so long because you've been dropping a ton of dimes. And uh, I mean, the insights are insane. If, if you're a listener listening to this, um, Go, you might have to rewatch this and or re-listen this and take some notes. Um, sorry, I don't know if if you saw me on my computer, I was typing away too. I'm always learning too, so I was taking my notes as well uh, for stuff that I can bring into our gym. Um, man, Stephen, final thoughts before I let you go? Uh, I, really, I feel like I talked a lot here, but uh, yeah, yeah, it was great. Yeah, yeah, no, I I, I definitely think that um, one of the best things that I learned and. I was very fortunate to learn at a, at a really young age and I would kind of press this upon anyone um, was if you really want to be better at volleyball or if you want to be a better coach or you want to understand more about technical, you go and watch the best players in the world. And there's a lot of avenues now to do that, uh, whether it's Layola, whether it's watching the Super Lego, watch your, whether it's watching on YouTube. YouTube has, I watch YouTube more than anything else. But I, I'm still watching great players play and because it inspires me, it makes me wonder what's possible. It makes me try new things in training. And it makes me see, see how the skill is meant to be performed. So if you watch a phenomenal guy pass in slow motion, and there's tons of clips out there, you'll understand you, from your eyes making the connection of what, you're, like, what, you're, what your body should be doing, it becomes easier to actually perform the skill that way. And... When you look, when you understand how you should look and how you're supposed to move, it becomes easier to do so. And you understand, okay, like I don't bend down very well. Okay, maybe that when I bend down, I don't feel very stable. Okay, well, there, there's a great thing. Maybe you need to work on your flexibility. Maybe you need more strength when you're down low to, to be able to pass balls better. But if you you need to be exposed to to what the best people are doing to understand that. So that's the last thing I would say. Appreciate it, man. Is it okay if I put your Instagram handle in the show notes? notes for our yeah, listeners for sure. to kind of follow you along your journey cool sure. and then um do you do but do you post it in your instagram where, where you're playing like the link to watch where you're finishing up now is, is it not um but um where i generally can don't we, uh, go to watch you play sorry i feel like i'm lagging here oh i'm i, I still got you can you hear me? Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, well, as long as you got me. Um, yeah. I don't actually really spend a lot of time on Instagram. I've been trying to cut my time down. So Fair I don't enough, actually no. post. Um, but if you go to Liga Volley, okay. legavolley.it, okay. um, you can get the links to games. Um, but I think Volleyball Source also posts sometimes the links to people's games. So I think sometimes they'll be there for that. Okay. But on terms of national team, yeah. There'll be someone on the national team will be posting a link. So you can, can check it out from there. Great. All right, Stephen, thanks so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. I know our listeners are definitely going to appreciate this one. This is a great episode and uh, I can't wait to have you back on the pod, man. Thanks again. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Great to talk to you. All right. Cue the music. Look. 
Are you at the stage you want to be in your volleyball journey? How would it feel to get clarity on your training and instead of taking months to get better, you could improve in weeks, if not days? When I was a young coach and player, I felt this way all the time. The truth is, after I got some great advice on how to be efficient, my learning curve grew exponentially. Let me show you how to be more efficient and effective in this game. I invite you to check out CoachBTraining.com for more resources that you can use to take your game to the next level. I look forward to helping you reach your volleyball goals.